Is he great? Is he great? I'll turn and say hello to somebody. We have our social distancing today. Welcome to Church at the Red Door, you uh, early risers, spring forwarders. I'm afraid we're going to be a little packed on the second service. Or, as Randy said, 9.30, people will be flocking in here. So I don't know who it is that doesn't have an iPhone or something that automatically changes. You know, you can, they have those kinds of devices today. But those of you who are still going off of your oven clock that you did not change this morning, then you have, they may have a problem. But obviously, you're the, you're the technologically savvy here this morning. So we just sang, How Great Thou Art. In fact, forget it. Let's stop. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this day. It is always a privilege to come together with people who love you. Um, maybe some today with us that are seeking you or watching via live stream or on television this morning that are seeking you that are, or curious whether or not you exist, uh, whether or not your father, there was a design, intelligent design and a creator in the universe or not. And Lord, I just pray that you'd speak to all of us wherever we are, whether it's somebody who's been walking with the Lord for 50 or 60 years or somebody who's just kicking the tires. Lord, you and your spirit have the amazing ability to do that through the proclamation of your word. So we anticipate you doing that. We worship you. We honor you as a community. We bow before you. Uh, we listen to your words this morning because you are, in fact, the author of all life. In Jesus' name, amen. So we were singing there, How Great Thou Art, and again, I've quoted from this. I, I'm not trying to give him any undue. He's now passed. Um, Christopher Hitchens was one of the most well-known atheists of our time. He wrote a book called God Is Not Great. I've told you before, I didn't pay full price, but I did get 30% off. And then I mark out not, and I God is great, but anyway, uh, the book, listen to what he says about religion. Uh, essentially, the tagline here is religion poisons everything. Religion poises, poisons everything. And I am going to talk about, because Jesus did, faulty, brutal, and merciless religion. Listen to what he says in this uh, chapter 2 here. He says, imagine that you can perform a feat of which I am incapable now, he talks in a very condescending manner throughout the entire book. Imagine, in other words, that you can picture an infinitely benign and all-powerful creator who conceived of you, then made and shaped you, brought you into the world he had made for you, and now supervises and cares for you even while you sleep. Imagine further that if you obey the rules and commandments that he has lovingly prescribed you will qualify for an eternity of bliss and repose. I do not say that I envy you this belief because to me it seems like the wish for a horrible form of benevolent and unalterable dictatorship, but I do have a sincere question. Why does such a belief not make its adherents happy? It must seem to them that they have come into possession of a marvelous secret of the sort that they could cling to in moments of even the most extreme adversity. Why doesn't it make its adherents happy? Because that functionally is not what Jesus taught about salvation or reality. That may have been what he came into contact with, but 
following rules and regulations and people who set up those rules and regulations, both the interpreters, the teachers, and then those who impose those laws will always suffer from being, well, just never satisfied. Religion in that context does not, will not, cannot, has never satisfied the soul. Keeping rules doesn't satisfy the soul. Having a relationship with the creator of your soul satisfies your soul. And in that relationship, there will be necessary boundaries that you both recognize and know intuitively within your own mind and your will and your emotions. You know that that would in some way compromise your relationship and therefore Though you struggle in this life, you move far away, you, you stay away from those things through the leading of the Spirit, and that's exactly what Paul would tell the Romans. Now, those who are led by the Spirit, these are the sons of God, not those who are led by rules and regulations, and therefore then the interpreters and the, the teachers and the guides, the blind guides, Jesus often called them. We're now in Luke 11, verse 37. Jesus does this, uh, he, he speaks, in Matthew 23, we get the eight woes to the Pharisees and the scribes, and here we get a little bit shorter list, but it's the woes, the woes. Now, first of all, you need to understand that a woe is not a curse. A woe is something essentially that grabs your attention, stop, think about what's going on, and essentially woe is, a, I am so incredibly broken and sad for you. That's what really these woes mean. And let me say it again, and it's important that you understand this. A woe is not a forever curse, and you'll understand that more as we get into this. Okay, you ready? Luke chapter 11, verse 37. Now, when he, Jesus, had spoken a Pharisee, remember Pharisees struggle, not all Pharisees as we'll see, but many of the Pharisees and struggled with the bad eye. They couldn't see the light. In fact, the light, quote-unquote, light that was in them was darkness. That's what we looked at last week. Ask him to have lunch with him. And he went in and reclined at the table. And when the Pharisees saw it, he was surprised that he had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. Who had designed all these little rules and things? Well, as the interpreters of the law, we'll see this morning, the scribes and the lawyers and those who taught them, and then the Pharisees who would then take those and try to implement them and work them into society, and they were the separated ones, which is essentially what the Pharisees meant. He was surprised, but then Jesus said to him, Now you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside of you, you are full of robbery and wickedness. The outside looks good. So let me just tell if Christopher, if I could have had a conversation with Christopher Hitchens and never had the opportunity, but if I could have, you say God is not great. Let me just tell you that you are observing the outside. Uh, you've had the privilege, excuse me, you've had the privilege of discovering through the actions of religion down, not just Christian dumb or, or Islam or anything, but you've, you've, you've been an observer of some pretty stagnant, filthy, smelly stuff that was on the inside of some cups. And Jesus observed that too. That has no bearing on whether or not Jesus died, was buried, and was resurrected. It's just a picture of, well, it's just the human condition. 
He said, you foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also, but give that which is within is charity. In other words, you want the cure here? Cultivate inner beauty of mercy and care and concern and compassion. That's what Jesus is essentially saying there. And then all things are cleaned for you. In other words, this is an inside-out thing, not an outside-in thing. Religion is always an outside-in thing, man's attempt to get to God true relationship with Jesus as described in this book from Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation 22, there is one narrative. God created you to have a relationship with himself. And if you don't understand that, you're only going to see religion and you'll be distracted and I meet them every single day. People just not connecting. They just, I don't want to go there. And then almost every time they will recount some kind of story where they encountered faulty, brutal, and merciless religion. Jesus did too. It shouldn't catch us by surprise that we're going to look around our world and see, even under the guise of Christianity, at times, faulty, brutal, and merciless religion. Some of you have experienced that and are still recovering from that. And let me be clear, some of you have experienced outside-in religion, not inside-out relationship governed by the Spirit, which necessitates then the blood of Jesus. Some of you have experienced that, and you're still trying to recover from that, and you still, you still vacillate. You're not sure what your standing is with God. You kind of hope, and you kind of listen to these words, but maybe you have some history with just some really bad theology. Jesus goes on to begin to pronounce some woes. He's going to pronounce a few woes first on the Pharisees and then a few woes on the scribes and the lawyers. Now, for our purposes, there could be some slight, uh, the scholars slightly disagree on this. For our purposes, scribes and lawyers are going to be the same thing. Who was a scribe? First of all, before we read this, who in fact was a scribe? A scribe didn't have to come from the elite class. A scribe didn't even have to have his own father be a scribe. You could actually learn to be a scribe or a lawyer. Uh, they were taught this. They were the ones who were experts in the Mosaic Law, experts in the Mosaic Law, and then they would, they had the task of interpreting the Mosaic Law, but they also did some other things in civil society. They worked in commerce in different places and made rulings and things like that. They weren't working under a theocracy anymore. Rome was their overlord. But is, is it related to the nation? The scribes and the lawyers were the ones that were tasked with trying to interpret the complexities of the Mosaic Law, but they weren't the implementers. The Pharisees, on the other hand, and by the way, every culture has had scribes and lawyers. Every Scribblers is where we get our word scribble, writing things down, trying to understand, interpreting the law, all those. We, had, we still have lawyers with us uh, even here today, and so lawyers and scribes have been part of every culture for all of human history. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were a unique sect that existed during the time of Jesus from about 165 B.C. until, well, and really until the temple was destroyed, and then over time it eventually became, that sect became what we have uh, to some degree, the rabbinical Judaism, and we discussed that a couple of weeks ago that we're also fixated uh, somewhat on the oral law. So the Pharisees existed for a short period of time in human history. Scribes and lawyers have always existed uh, in pretty much every religion, who's going to make the laws? To Christopher Hitchens' point, who's going to make the laws and how can we make people miserable? 
Why aren't people happy just following rules? Well, Jesus is going to go on. Verse 42, woe to you Pharisees. How sad for you, you Pharisees. You pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb and yet disregard justice and the love of God. These things you should have done without neglecting the others. They were so punctilious about this that if they had a little herb garden and they had 10, they'd count out 10 little leaves and then they would take one and I'm going to tithe that and then they would have another and then I've got to, if anything comes to my account, I've got to come out with it and then take one-tenth. If it was spices or whatever it was, boy, they would work and they would work and then they would tell you about it too. I want to make sure you understand that we are the good people. And the Matthew 23 account, he also talks about you broadening your phylacteries. What does that mean? Well, phylacteries were a little bit something like an amulet that they would wear around their neck or in various places. And they were little containers with parchment on the inside and some of the legal mosaic principles. And they would put these things and they would let everybody see to broaden them would mean they would have more and more laws hung around their necks and in an amulet kind of a form. And uh, so everybody could see that they were all about the mosaic law. Tithe and, and all this and count out and be so, oh, and one little leaf, oh, I have 11, oh, okay, so that's going to go into the next 10, and I'll take this little piece. And Jesus is saying that's all just silliness. You should not have neglected mercy and compassion and, well, injustice, but you have. How sad for you. Let me say again, this message is for all, especially me professional. In other words, this is what I do. I'm tasked with coming, and, and I do it all during the week, and I stand before men and women, and I, talk, I said, this is what God says about things, and this is what God's, and I try to take this. Any professional religionist, if you will, uh, these are warnings, warnings first, and also indictments for anybody who would stand in front of you and say, this is what God says about who you are, why you were created, and how you get to him. We are accountable, and again, I, I quote this verse all the time, but in James it said, not many of you should want to be teachers or professional religionists, if you will, because as such, you will incur a stricter judgment. In other words, if you're going to stand before people and say, this is what this book is about, uh, you better be careful. Woe to you when you get it wrong. How sad for you and those who would hear you. And the whole, the Old Testament is full of, and I alluded to it a couple of weeks ago with our friends from Israel, uh, false shepherds. Jesus said they're muddying the waters. They're not making it clear. It's not, and then it, it becomes uh, very opaque, and you don't really know, and can I get together with God? And then they manipulate and control, and these are going to be what some of these woes revolve around. Now listen to what it says. You pay Verse 43, woe, second woe to you Pharisees, for you love the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplace. Look, I can tell you right now, if you truly preach the message of this book, you are not going to get very respectful greetings in the marketplace. So on Saturday mornings, I have a little opportunity to play a little golf with some guys and and yesterday, I, I, you know, have struggled with my feet through the years, and so I'm always trying to find the perfect shoe that helps my foot. And so sometimes I have, I go through a number of pairs, and a guy sets up and he goes, "Man, it looks like you got a new pair of shoes every single week you play." And to say it's not actually true, but I do go through a number trying to find something that I can walk around because my feet are so deformed and 
gross. And, uh, and then another guy said, oh, the ministry business must be pretty good. I said, oh, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I, I raid those coffers every chance I get to buy me some new shoes, right? But I didn't say anything. You know, what, what do you say? Those are not respectful greetings. Uh, look, you preach this message. You preach that the wrath of God is on this world, John 3, 36. The wrath of God is on this world, or, or Romans 5 as well, and that only blood suffices and that you're under condemnation until Jesus uh, pays the price for you, and by faith you're justified legally, and by blood you're justified legally. That's not popular, but Jesus as, uh, well, help me a little with my marriage, or give me some tips, you know. Uh, I've already, the, the other morning, yesterday morning, I actually got up, I get up really early, uh, Laura knows, 3.30, 4 o'clock, I wake up, boom, my eyes are awake, and if I can't go back to sleep, I get up. And so I, I, I did a whole, I, my whole message was in my head for Easter already. It was in my head. And uh, the title is Golf Digest Jesus, right? We're all looking for a tip. We all just want a tip. Just give me a tip. Don't change anything. Just give me a tip to help me play better a little bit, right? And that's what people want from religion. And, and, and we can't offer them that. That is not the message. So if you want respectful greetings, if you want everybody to go, oh, isn't he wonderful, and oh, isn't she wonderful, you're going to go into social circumstances where you're not going to get respectful greetings in the marketplace. You know, I've been at places here in the valley, and they, you know, somebody say, oh, this is the guy who leads our fellowship group, and they, ah, and they walk around me, and they, they don't like me, and they've accused me, and all kinds of things. You can't preach the message of this book and always have respectful greetings in the marketplaces. You have to compromise. So what essentially Jesus is saying, you're compromising the message. You're a false shepherd. That's a woe. How sad for you and how sad for the people that will listen to you. It's not a popular message. If they, Jesus said, if they've, well, if they've persecuted me and I'm the master and you're the student, they're going to persecute you as well. Woe to you. You want the chief seat in the synagogue? You want respectful greetings everywhere you go? This is not the book for you to be a professional religionist, I'm telling you. Verse 44, woe to you, for you are like concealed tombs, and people who walk over them are unaware of it. You look good on the outside, outside in, but inside, and Matthew 23 alludes to this, like dead men's bones on the inside, and people meet you, and they come in contact with you, and uh, we may have uh, phys- garb that we wear, you know, different religions have different things that you can identify people by, and people come in contact with you, and they're completely unaware of the fact that on the inside is full of de- death, because the true message of Jesus and the living spirit through his death, burial, and resurrection are not living on the inside of you. Now he goes on to the lawyers, verse 45. One of the lawyers or scribes for our purposes. Again, there may be some distinction. There's an argument about that. But one of the lawyers said to him in reply, now catch this, teacher, not Lord, but teacher, teacher, when you say this, you insult us too. They are essentially responsible for implementing these laws, but we're the one who have interpreted. We're the experts. You're offending us. And then he said, well, woe to you lawyers as well. Uh Uh-oh, what are we going to get now? For you weigh down men with burdens hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. 
Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and it was your fathers who killed them. Now catch this. This is really harsh. Now I want you to get this. We're going to go into a little bit more detail on this in a minute. So you are witnesses and approve the deeds of your fathers, because it was they who killed them, and you build their tombs. For this reason also the wisdom of God said, I will send to them prophets and apostles, and some of them you will kill, and some, well, you will persecute. And so that the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world will what? Be charged against this generation. And then he says something very specific. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. Now Matthew 23 specifically says that this Zechariah was the son of Barakai. Now sidebar here just for you Bible scholars and we need to get through this and if you you can kind of tune out if uh, but this is important that you get this the son the, there were two well there were multiple Zacharias in the Bible but specifically there was Zachariah the son of Barakai who actually wrote the the last kind of testament the one of the minor prophets the book of Zechariah right before Malachi the second to last book in your Old Testament but in second chronicles chapter 24 there was a son another son uh, named Zechariah and Jehoiada. And, and so here you have two. Which one was it? Well, we have in Second Chronicles chapter 24, he actually did die in the temple. They slaughtered a prophet in the, in the temple area. And so is Jesus referring to that? But then Matthew 23 says it was Zechariah Barakai, who wrote the book of Zechariah and lived much later. And so which one was it? I, I, you know, you, they don't know. So I, I tend to fall in the, in the place that it was actually Zechariah the minor prophet, and he died in a similar fashion, but it's kind of up. We don't know exactly. Some say it was a scribal, area, a scribal error, that it should have been uh, Je- Zechariah the son of Jehoiada. But either way, uh, it's the culmination. Second Chronicles was really the, the finale. If you look in the Old Testament, it, it's the last book in the, old, uh, in the old chronology of the way it was laid out. For us, it's the second to last book, one of the last minor prophets. The point is, whether it was Zechariah of Berechiah or Zechariah of Jehoiada, either one, those Zacharias kind of represented the end of the story. And Abel, what? Cain killed Abel. And that was the beginning of the story. This happens in Genesis chapter, uh, the first four chapters, right? So we get Abel and then Zechariah, whichever one it was. I tend to skewed towards Zechariah, son of Berechiah, the last one that wrote the minor, uh, one of the last really recordings that we have in the Old Testament. But either way, what Jesus is doing is that your fathers have been murdering from the beginning. In other words, you're of the father and the spirit of Cain. And all the way to Zechariah, to the end of the story, and they were killed, they killed him right in the vicinity, right in the vicinity of the temple. You've always been trying to kill what God's been trying to say because you are full of dead men's bones. Goes on to say, who has killed between the altar and the house of God? Yes, I will tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. And woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away, and this is the key, the key of knowledge. You yourselves did not enter, and you are hindering those who are trying to hinder enter. Let me tell you something. It happens under the auspices of Christendom all over this planet. 
people take this book and somehow they derive some kind of benefit or story or moral or something, some spin some kind of a moral tale, but they miss it, and I hear it all the time. I've been going to church for 20 years, and I've never heard about being born again. I've been to going to church for 40 years. We never studied the Bible. I've been to going to church. We never heard about, you know, spilling of blood and applying and being filled with the Spirit and and we just didn't hear that. We, we liked practical applications, which basically means I'm going to take this as a moral code book and kind of help you out in your life. And it does. It, you know, Colossians chapter 2, verse 3 says that Jesus is the source of all wisdom and knowledge. Of course, you get some beautiful application to your life, but it's not the fundamental story. And if you miss the fundamental story, you can be using this for purposes for which it was not designed to be used. This book is a guidepost for you to get back to your Heavenly Father and re-engage in a relationship, the very purpose for which He created you. Christopher Hitchens had it wrong. He observed bad religion and said all religion is poisonous. He missed the boat. He was looking at outside-in religion, not the very, well, not the only kind that exists in this book. The real purpose of this book is to transform you from the inside out, to put a new spirit on the inside of you, God's spirit. That's the story. And if you miss that, you're hindering people, Jeff Cranford's of the world, if I miss that, I am hindering people from entering the kingdom. Oh, yeah, try this. Your business is suffering here? Try this. Here's, here's some wisdom literature from Proverbs or whatever. And it's, it, look, you can take this. You can take this book and get some wisdom out of it and learn how to be a little bit more humble and, and be more philanthropic and all those things. But that is not the message. The core message is Jesus dead, buried, and resurrected. Why? Because the wrath of God abides on the earth and on everybody sinning in the likeness of Adam. That's the message. But Jesus is indicting them. They were scrupulous. They were so all about being morally correct and morally right. And Jesus said, you're working so hard for the outside. It looks good. It looks, it looks like you're washed up. But in fact, the inside's full of death. Now, how do you know this? How do you know that he was accurate? Well, look at the next verse, 53. So when he left there, had they been true shepherds, had they been true professional religion, religionists that were accurate to the word and not hindering and helping people enter the kingdom, they would have not responded this way. And when he left there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile, to question him closely on many subjects, plotting against him to catch him in something he might say. To do what? To crucify him. See, in the end, how do you know? You know them by their deeds. The Bible says you'll know them by their deeds. You see bad religion and say, well, I don't like religion because I've seen all these bad deeds. Was it bad religion or was it the essence of Jesus? It was bad religion that you've seen. If you've seen the essence of Jesus, you will fall to your knees and began to worship. If you can just see Jesus, the task of our church, our community in this valley and anywhere else it might go, our task is to be people who are falling down and trying to give people a glimpse, just a glimpse of the perfection of the Savior, of Jesus himself, a perfect representative 
of his father as he said he was. If you've seen me, you've seen the father. You don't want to know what God's like? Look at Jesus. He laid down his life. But he's being pretty harsh here. He's being pretty mean-spirited, isn't he? Uh, I mean, how can you really take that? Uh, You know, Jesus is pretty tough. Well, we're going to talk about that as well. Was he doing this because he hated the lawyers and the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and all the other sects of Judaism? Was he doing this for that purpose or because, because he loved them? Because he loved them. You ever had Jesus really speak to you in your own heart and give you a harsh word? A stern word? It's because he loves you. Do, do, do sometimes you read the Bible and feel corrected? It's because he loves you. A parent who doesn't correct his child is not a loving parent. A God who does not correct his creation and guide them into truth is not a loving God. Without stern, without a stern voice, you don't have a loving God. But it can't be stern. It's got to be stern and then lead to, a, lead to something other than rules and regulations. That's important for you to understand. Frank Hirsch says, by reducing the practice of religion to the form of law, all acts are placed on a paragraph with each other. The motives are no longer taken into consideration, only the deed itself. It follows that the highest ethical attainment was the formal satisfaction of the law. In other words, people just kind of, what's the highest attainment uh, for these scribes and these lawyers and these Pharisees and the way they positioned their people's relationship with the creator of the universe? Formal attainment to the law. And when that happens, naturally it leads to what? A finical literalism. In other words, a finicky kind of literalism. It'll just lead to everything being weird and hyper-literal and weird and strange and and well, here's Jesus, the creator of all things, the one that would be the lamb of the world, and they sit down and they start eating and all they can see is he hasn't washed his hands according to our, well, to traditions of the elders. And that's where he also says, finally, the moral life must, under cir- such circumstances, lose its unity and be split up into manifold precepts and duties. Law always affords opportunity for casuistry, in other words, just dishonest application. And it was the development of this in the guidance of the Jewish religious life through the precepts of the elders, which call forth Christ's repeated denunciation of the works of the scribes. People were just, when it comes into just formal laws and rules and regulations, it always disintegrates and degenerates into into nonsense and finicky literalism and have you washed your hands did you do it according to the elders did you do it ceremonially have you you know they were constantly they were missing the point by a million miles here was the creator of the universe in their midst the lamb of the living god the lamb of god himself the rock the manna the light of god the light that's come down from heaven the manna that's come down from heaven here he is right there manifest in front of them have you washed your hands that's how finicky it can get. So again, when he says, okay, you tithe, first, back through the woes, you tithe, what is this? Selective obedience. In other words, I'll obey what I want to obey. I meet people like that all the time. And I tend to, see, I tend to fall into their camp. I'll, I'll, I'll do this. But if I've done so much of that, then he can't, you can't hold me responsible for this. Have you ever had that temptation, or is that just me? 
if I do a little bit of this, God will be kind of distracted by the fact that I'm, you know, kind of sleeping around over here. Or if God, you know, if I tithe or give all this money away or whatever, then maybe God won't recognize the fact that I'm not loving my wife as Christ loved the church. Or, or, or you go down the whole list and the gamut of things we tend to see, we kind of have the lady, uh, lady justice right here, and we have the scales, and we say, oh, I'll do some good things, and oh, that'll help me pull me up over here. And he says, you guys are, again, missing the point. And why? Because relig- religionists, professional religionists, they do what? They, they love to have selective obedience. They love the social accolades. What did Proverbs tell us? Proverbs 29, 25, the fear of man brings a snare every time. The fear of man, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. If you fear people's opinions, yeah, anybody been in a social circumstance this last week or maybe somebody said something and you just felt ashamed and you didn't say anything? If you fear men, well, woe on you. How sad it is that you wouldn't stand up and just say something. You can do it winsomely and lovingly and kindly and talk about Jesus in a social situation if it comes up. Don't back off from that because of the fear of men because it ensnares you and says, ah, I need respectful greetings in the marketplace. Don't do it. And then lastly, you parade yourselves as alive. Again, this, these tombs, right? But, but you, you, you and your teaching are leading people to death and not to life. Those are the woes on the Pharisees. But I want to get more specific about some of these woes to these scribes or lawyers. First of all, again, adding burdens to people through their interpretation of the laws. Again, think of the scribes and the lawyers as being the interpreters of the law and the teachers. The Pharisaical sect was the implementers. They would impose them. They were the more elite sect of Judaism. Uh, by the way, there were, there were scribes who were Pharisees, and then there were Pharisees who were part of the Sanhedrin along with some Sadducees. And there were even some scribes that were part, probably part of the hierarchy of the Sadducees, the more politically adept, high priestly class that were kind of complicit with the Romans. And so all of this was true, but again, what did they do? They tended to control and manipulate people through the law. And let me tell you something. If you don't think religion will want to control and manipulate, oh, it will. You have got to go through us. You want to have communion? You have to go through us. You want to have something? You want to get you know buried and maybe go to heaven? You need to go through us. And so all of a sudden, this control, this manipulation started happening, and and they were adding burdens to people that were just not there. They were, they were pronouncing moral requirements that they themselves couldn't even perform themselves. It's bad religion. It's not the message of Jesus. I want to go back now to this false, falsely plain homage to these prophets. And I want to go back real quickly because I think it's powerful. And as we close here, I want to go back to Genesis chapter 4. If you understand what Jesus meant, that the blood shed from Abel to Zechariah. See, you're, those, that was your father's, and they had murder in their heart, and you are the same as your father's. And, and all of this over the, all these years is going to fall on this generation. Why? Well, they didn't have me, but now I'm here. And I am the very fulfillment of the law, and you have, I'm right before your eyes, and all that is going to fall on this generation. That, that is incredibly harsh, terrifying if you think about it, terrifying. Well, what did he mean by starting with Abel? Genesis chapter 4, I'll read the story just real quickly, you know it. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. 
and Abel, who Jesus alludes to. So you're, now, what they would do, by the way, is that uh, many of these uh, uh, scribes, and, and they would build, and Pharisees, they would build these beautiful monuments to the prophets and their forefathers and things like that, and they would... And they would be very elaborate with some of these tombs and just honor and all this kind of thing. That's what you're doing, but you're actually of the spirit of the people who kill the very guys that you're trying to honor uh, years later. You're honoring the prophets who are your fathers, uh, but your fathers killed the prophets. What an indictment. What a warning. So Abel, on his part, brought of the firstlings of the flock and of their fat portions, and the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. Why? It was a blood offering. See, what Abel was saying without really saying is that if I'm going to make a sacrifice to God, it's got to be through the shedding of blood. Cain, for his offering, he had no regard, and so Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell, and the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. And its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Why? Abel offered a blood sacrifice. Cain offered a non-blood sacrifice. God loved Abel's sacrifice, had no regard for Cain, so Cain killed him. Now, what does that teach us in the 21st century? Thousands and thousands of years later is that God, you want the keys to the kingdom? You want to know how to get right with God? It's a blood offering that, ha- that God has regard for. And if it's not a blood offering, if it's philanthropy or being moral or just following a bunch of rules and regulations, God has no, he has no regard for it at all. No matter how hard you work, no matter how sincere you are, That's the story. And when people see that, and you're talking about blood, and they're, see, this is one of the greatest questions I get all the time. You're telling me that Jesus is the only way. Look at all these other religions and how hard they're trying and all the effort that they're putting into it and how passionately they believe in it and all those Do you realize, I mean, I think logically all of us realize that we can believe something so passionately and have it be absolutely wrong. I mean, you you can do that. I mean, people die all the time because they believe so passionately that if they drink this or eat that or whatever, that it'll kill, you know, their cancer. And they say, this is, some might even say, this is a simple cancer. Maybe it's a... Uh, dermatological cancer, and it's a, it's a small cancer. It can be removed. I can remove it, excise this thing in a matter of moments. Now I'm going to eat, you know, bananas and hay straw or something. I don't know. And I'm going to do it three times a day and because I believe it. And then all of a sudden that little, that little melanoma who could have been excised in its earliest infant stages grows and grows and grows, and the person dies. And then we, what do we applaud them for believing that bananas and because they worked so hard at it. I mean, they, you know, they ate these bananas and over and over and over every day, three, four times a day, and they ate this straw, and they just, they, they organic straw, and they brought it in, and it, do we applaud that, or do we go, well, that's pretty ridiculous. It could have been done so succinctly and so, so easily. No, we don't applaud it, but we applaud it in religion. 
Well, it may not be true, but you know, when a person says that, what they're saying is none of it's true. That's what they're saying. They've already made a declarative statement. None of it's true. That's the, that's the statement. None of it's true. So applaud them all for trying, but they're all, well, they're all stupid because there is no God. That's really the core spirit behind that. There either, there either is truth or there's not. Not all truths are equal. There cannot be both hundreds of thousands of gods in Hinduism or one God in three persons, Echad, a compound unity. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is Echad, one compound unity. There, it can't be. It can't be hundreds of thousands in one. And say it's all, well, you can say it's all not true, but you can't say it's all true. That's logically ridiculous, and we know it. Is it blood or is it not? Can we do it through religion and our own self-effort or not? Abel did it right, and he had it, and Cain killed him. And these Pharisees and these scribes, not all of them, but they were in the same spirit. Zechariah, the end. So I'm going to take Zechariah of Berechiah because he said this. Zechariah, I'm going to read from 6 and, and also chapter 13. I'm just going to put this together. Uh, then say to him, this is Zechariah is writing this, he understood, the Lord of hosts, behold, a man whose name is Branch, he's, he's looking forward over 500 years into the future and seeing man called Branch, that's Jesus. And he will branch out from where he is and he will build the temple of the Lord, literally build the temple. Well, he's gonna, Jesus is building a temple now. You're a living stone. He's, this is part of a temple, okay? Yet, he, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will bear the honor and sit on the rule of the throne, and he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices, and priest, king, and all this will be one. That's Jesus. He's both the priest and the lamb, and our high priest and the king. You can't, you, those offices are never together, but Zechariah is looking forward and saying those, those are going to be brought together. But then he says this, and those who are far off will come and build the temple of the Lord. We are far off, and we're... If you're part of the community of Jesus, you're helping build this temple. Even today, you could be part of building the temple. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me, and will, it will take place if you obey the Lord. And then verse 7, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man my associate, declares the Lord. Okay, here's the king. Here's the priest. Oh, isn't this beautiful? He's building the temple. And then all of a sudden, strike the shepherd, that the sheep may be scattered. And I will turn my hand against the little ones and will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts of it will be cut off and perish and, and a third will be left. And I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver, test them as gold, and I will call on my name and I will answer them and I will say, these are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. Now, king, priest, see, what is Zechariah saying? It's going to require blood, striking of the shepherd, the piercing, Isaiah saw it, the piercing of the shepherd, the blood that sprinkles the nations, Isaiah saw it in Isaiah 52. The lamb led to slaughter, Isaiah, back to Isaiah 52. A man marred more than any man, crown of thorns, pierced through his hands, pierced through his side, brutally beaten, beard plucked from his face. Strike the shepherd, there must be blood. Zechariah saw it, Abel saw it, and you guys are saying no blood necessary, just follow the precepts of the elders. Woe is you. It's so sad. You're missing the whole point. And then that's the last woe that he gives on these 
interpreters of the law, the very last, well, you use the keys of knowledge which should open the door wide to God, but you're, well, you're actually using it to keep people away from the creator of their souls. You're not entering in, and you're hindering those that are trying to enter in. You don't think religion can do that? I meet people every day. I've never heard this. I've never heard that the wrath of God is on the world. I've never heard. I thought God was just all-inclusive and loving and merciful. And Well, he is. He's very inclusive and very merciful through the blood of Jesus, through faith in Christ. Don't say that. Be more inclusive. Don't be so narrow. Jesus was narrow. Jesus died. Jesus was resurrected. Show me somebody else that had the power over life and death, and I'll follow them. I find nobody. I find religionists, professional religionists, I'm not following them. I'm following Jesus. So in closing, let me ask you a question. Did any, did any of this have good result? Or was this just harsh? How does Jesus, I mean, come on, Jesus. I thought you were loving, compassionate, merciful Jesus. Oh, he is. This is the most compassionate thing you could do. If you're being affected even today by these words of Jesus, not me, his words, then it's love that he's showing you. It's stern, of course it's stern. But it's better than the brutal, faulty, misleading religion that just permeates our culture today. What happened because of these woes? Well, I'll just give you a couple little things. Titus 3, verse 13. Let me read it. Diligently, now this is after the Holy Spirit's been poured out. We get this picture later. Paul's writing this letter to Titus. And he says, hey, Titus, diligently help Zenos the lawyer. I thought there was a curse on all the lawyers and the Pharisees. No, not a curse. How sad it is. But if you listen to these words. Something happened with Zenos the lawyer. He went from woe to, hey, help Zenos the lawyer and Apollo on their way so that, that nothing is lacking. for them. He became part of the church, probably because he heard some words like these from Jesus. Or John 7, verse 50, Nicodemus, he who came to him before being one of them, said to him, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? He was already beginning to defend Jesus. Who was Nicodemus? Pharisee. How about John 19, verse 39? Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds weight. Nicodemus, Pharisee, I thought he was cursed. Mm -mm. He heard the woe, he heard the stern rebuke, and something happened. He'd given up his life. Acts 15, verse 5. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying it is necessary to circumcise them and direct them to observe the law of Moses. Oh, they were still early in the infancy of their understanding of all this, but there were Pharisees who believed the woes worked. The stern, harsh rebuke worked. Why? Because it was done in love. And it was true. <clears throat> Has your life benefited at any point from any kind of stern correction? Have you never felt that from the Lord? I can tell you mine has. It hurt at the time. And it continues to hurt. Sometimes I'll, I might wake up in the middle of the night and I'll just feel, how could you have said that? What, what are you doing? Why are you thinking that way? Why are you so self-satisfied? Self Why are you so selfish? 
you know, and I'll I'll just feel that rebuke. But he does it in love to lead to fruit. I want to be fruitful. I don't want to just be some kind of Christian professional religionist. Forget it. There was a war that raged in me for all kinds of years, folks. And there's still a war between my flesh and my spirit, but in my spirit there is no more war. The war is now over. I still live in a very dry, deserty, dusty place. But my spirit is is singularly unified with the Holy Spirit because of the blood, not because I became a moral person. Are you with me? So the message is the wrath of God abides. Jesus came to justify us through faith and his blood, Romans chapter 5. And once I bought into that, he then poured out the Holy Spirit who lives in me and now the war is no longer raging on the inside of me. Yeah, my flesh tries to pull me away all the time, but still there's no more war. I'm unified and there's no dissonance in me anymore. I know where I'm going. I know who the creator is. I know he loves me because I understand the gospel, not because uh, somebody's manipulating me or coercing me or you know, trying to control my religious life. No, I have a relationship. I can go directly to Jesus now. So in that sense, the war is over. I still live in a desert, but I'll tell you the war is over. Is it over in your heart? It can be right now. And I'm just going to ask you, pray. Say, the war's still in me. I a lot of religion in me, and I even wonder if I'm going to heaven. I, it's not based on your ability. It's based upon his death and his resurrection, your faith. That's it justified through faith, Romans 5, justified by the blood. Your part is the faith. His part is the blood. You don't spill your own blood to get to heaven. He spilled his blood to get to heaven. That's why God had regard for Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's. Don't be part of that spirit. Just tell the Lord right now, Lord, I I choose to have faith in your vicarious death on the cross for me. Receive me. Amen. And I would say welcome to the kingdom on the full authority of this entire book. Now the war can be over in your life. Oh, there's a lot of cleaning up that has to go on with all of us until we die. Struggle and we come together as a worshiping community, but a humble community. Nobody proud here. Nobody expecting, you know, beautiful greetings in the marketplace. No control, no manipulation. If you ever feel that, then just run, go somewhere else. Just a perfect, intimate, beautiful relationship with the Creator. And you're no longer in a battle. So we're going to close with this song, The War is Over. And he's actually sings it from a desert place. I thought it was appropriate for our... And then I hope you have a wonderful day because you're ahead of the clock by about an hour. And I'm sure we have hundreds of people out there for a 930 service, which we don't have, not till 10. But uh, I love you. Jesus loves you. If you heard a stern word today, that was Jesus loving you.